Welcome to Muffly Auto, a Harry Potter podcast where we fill your ears to prevent you from hearing nearby conversations. I'm Josh. And I'm Blake. And today we brew the elixir of life and try to turn common metals into gold as we continue our journey through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and come now to the 13th chapter, Nicholas Flamel. Now, Josh, we know the elixir of life is uh, is pretty hard to make. Apparently, only Nicholas Flamel has made it. And uh, I just, can you even uh, grasp the fact that Nicholas Flamel is, uh, or, you know, 665 and uh, his wife Perrin now 658. That is uh, quite a many years lived. Yeah, you know, as as they say, the age gap becomes less as you get older, you know. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so by the time you reach your 600s, really, what's three years, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, even if uh, even if they were sort of 50 years difference, it probably wouldn't be a big deal by that point. Although maybe uh, at the start, that would be a little bit awkward. Blake, Blake what are we suggesting here? <laughs> yeah. No, three years, not a big deal. In your 600s, it's uh, it's just like a second, really. Uh, but yeah, pretty, pretty crazy how long uh, they've lived. I don't. No, if I can say that that would be appealing, um, not too sure about that, but uh, definitely the other part of uh, the Philosopher's Stone is uh, more what appeals to me. I mean, turning metal into gold, that's a pretty <laughs> easy life. Yeah, it definitely, um, you know, it seems, it seems like something that would just be um, especially valuable in, in the muggle world. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, as as gold is uh, seemingly a far more rare substance than for mm-hmm. wizards who um, have their money made out of actual gold. But um, yeah, certainly um, I would imagine it would be a, a difficult process to, to, to do, but we don't actually get that information in the chapter. So it, it does leave us wondering a bit, okay, just what does that look like to, to use the philosopher's stone for um, that purpose? Yeah, no, there isn't really any mention of that. And, you know, it. I mean, it doesn't even describe that Nicholas Flamel and his wife are like filthy stinking wretch. Um, yeah, that's right. And so it kind of almost maybe shows a little bit of control over, um, you know, who Flamel was and kind of uh, sort of says maybe mm. who he is, that it's not like he wasted away his years, you know, on riches and things like that. So he focused more maybe, you know, on his craft and potentially maybe that's why he succeeded in making the uh, philosopher's stone is that, you know, his desire was maybe more for, for research side of purposes rather than, you know, actually like desiring the, the gold that comes uh, with it, you know, that you can easily make uh, gold, but who knows? Who knows? Not us. Not us. Not us. Um, So, uh, to summarize the chapter, uh, Harry and the rest of the Gryffindor Quidditch team are frantically practicing for their upcoming match against Hufflepuff. Much to the whole house's dismay, Wood informs them that Snape will be refereeing the game. Harry, convinced that it was Snape who was cursing him during the match against Slytherin, seriously considers not playing for his own safety, but eventually a sense of duty and bravery win out. A run-in with Neville proves to be incredibly significant as the trio remember where they have heard the name Nicholas Flamel. In addition to listing his other magical accomplishments, Dumbledore's chocolate frog card mentions Flamel and their association with alchemy. Having now established this connection, Hermione quickly links Flamel to the Philosopher's Stone, and they decide that this has to be what is hidden below Fluffy. 
Harry and Gryffindor win handily against Hufflepuff. But as the match finishes, Harry sees something mysterious in the Forbidden Forest. He flies closer to investigate and overhears a conversation between Snape and Quirrell. In relaying the information to his friends, Harry concludes that Quirrell is the only teacher left who is standing between Snape and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the only thing standing between uh, Snape and the Philosopher's Stone is Quirrell. And I just love the last line of this chapter. Uh, Ron says, uh, he said, oh, it'll be gone by next Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> it's just there is no hope uh, in Quirrell and I think we learned from the next uh, uh, chapter that uh, you know Quirrell hasn't apparently broken and uh, you know and so they're trying to give him encouragement to kind of yeah, carry on that's right. but, yeah. Um, yeah I think uh, you you definitely wouldn't want uh, Quirrell as the last line of defense uh, absolutely um, absolutely it's it's one of those things that um, especially in this kind of uh, ruse that he's putting on of being you know the bumbling stumbling stuttering professor um he he is certainly the the opposite in many ways of snape um and and yeah i i couldn't i couldn't think of anyone less at this point in the book that i would want to guard something valuable for myself <laughs> yeah i would uh, definitely not want him that's for sure um and and reading through this uh, chapter which is is kind of a small chapter uh, i think as we as we look at a, a key theme um breakthrough and discovery where do we where do we see that throughout the chapter josh well i think the first way we see it like is we see it with regards to draco and some of the other first year slytherins they've certainly had something of an upper hand in the relationship between uh, neville harry and ron um, mm -hmm. they've been picking on neville uh, they have tricked Ron and Harry into going out for a wizard's duel already. Uh, th there is a, um, a, a real rivalry that's developed because of Harry's Quidditch ability, because, because mm. he's been allowed on the team. Uh, there is this tension mounting. And, and here they, they put uh, Neville in what, what seems to be potentially the most uh, damaging curse that they've learned as first years the the leg locking curse and it's pretty significant what they do to him and and he's really upset and and what happens during the match against hufflepuff is that there's a bit of a there's a bit of a fight that breaks out a brouhaha as we like to call it or, or fisticuffs that are, are engaged and and ron and draco are wrestling on the ground um, nothing like a good 11 year old fight um lots of wrestling always um, yep. i say that as you know as a teacher of 11 year olds and uh <laughs> and then neville all of a sudden decides that he's going to take on crab and goyle which is just you know, fantastic. Yeah. So, so there is real breakthrough that that happens there. Yeah, the the, the description of Graham and Goyle, uh, you know, they're just sort of sort of huge, uh, big boys yeah. of either side of Malfoy, and for Neville, um, who I'm I'm assuming is just this scrawny little runt uh, of a kid, uh, just to go up against them, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, not looking good for Neville. Uh, no, but not we, the wisest choice for him. Not, not at all. And um, and then from the discovery side of the key theme, we learn more information uh, about Nicholas Flamel. Uh, we learn uh, that he's 665. He has a wife who's 658. I mean, not much of an age gap there. Uh, but he's the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone, uh, which is pretty impressive. And, uh, and so we sort of get a little bit of knowledge coming in uh, through him and, and about him. 
Yeah, and this is this is breakthrough too. Up until this point, it's been a very frustrated process of not being able to find any information about this guy, and mm. and so there is a a, a definite sense that um, that all of a sudden the the floodgates have opened and they have now unlocked the secret that is going to make the rest of their you know journey to protect this object so much easier because. In, in one chapter, they find out who Flamel is because they find out who he is. They find out exactly what the object is. Um, yeah. I, I think it's quite likely to think that um, they're in, in their minds, finding out who Flamel was would have helped in finding out what the object was. But I don't know if they expected to, to know it instantly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so much breakthrough really does take place in in that overarching theme of, of discovering who the, the flaw, who is the, the mysterious man and what is the um, object in the dungeon. Yeah. yeah. They, they essentially just needed a, a, like a time, a time kind of marker uh, to help, you know, uh, Hermione all of a sudden go, ah, you know, we're searching all these sort of yeah, modern yeah. books. Um, and we talked about that in the, the last episode, I believe that all these kind of little things n- noted to make it, you know, seem like they had checked all these modern uh, you know, books. And clearly, uh, Nicholas Flamel was not born in, in kind of, you know, the the, the times in, in recent <laughs> times, because he's, you know, to say the least, he's old. So it's quite a long, long time ago. So, you know, Hermione goes up and grabs uh, her, her large book uh, and, uh, and goes through that and kind of knows from then on. And, and clearly, like, he must have done amazing things if he's, he's so talented to do, uh, to create philosopher's stone but clearly this is like the pinnacle of his achievement so it must just mm. be very obvious especially because harry's seen the package um it could maybe it could have been different if, if like you know harry uh, hadn't seen the size of the package that and um, they took from gringotts but he knows that it's sort of this small grubby little package and in, in this in these wrappings so surely a stone would fit in that and uh, and that would be easily connected yeah it is it is something too that as as harry f- has seen the stone in the only form he's seen the stone it was a described as a grubby little package um and and to to think that this stone holds secrets to near immortality and to um, un, unspoken riches is probably hard to believe at first. Um, yeah. I think moving into character development, we get a few little things here. And uh, I wanted to note one thing with Neville. Um, and that's, you know, we, we understand that Neville's kind of this, yeah, <laughs> this scrawny kid. Um, but, you know, he, he is, uh, I guess... Uh, the receiving on the receiving end of you know being bullied a lot by the Slytherins, especially Malfoy, um, and uh, you know Harry encourages him and tells him you know I just it's it's quite a cheesy line, uh, but then Harry encourages him and he uses this uh, against Malfoy uh, when they're watching Quidditch and he says I'm worth twelve of you Malfoy, uh, and uh, it's it's very nice because we know that Malfoy is just such a, a sad character. He's, he's probably had a, a very uh, I don't know, hard, lonely life, maybe with uh, being an only only child. Um, yeah, but- it must be really hard to grow up in a mansion with you know <laughs> all this money and. It's just really suffering, you know. It is really hard when your parents pretty much have a philosopher's stone worth of money. Um, but, uh, no, so that's that's kind of. I don't amazing. think I don't think Malfoy. I don't think Malfoy would ever think that he's had a hard life, but I think he no. has had quite a difficult life. If you look from you know an outside perspective, I'd agree. Yeah, yeah. 
that's that's a yeah. good point yeah from from looking from the outside i mean if if you were to say would you like you know malfoy's life and then mm. be the person that he is or would you you know have someone like ron's life who who's on the very opposite side of it where you know he his family are kind of been you know paycheck to paycheck almost and um but he, you know how ron's turned out you just think well i'd rather be i'd rather be ron um yeah. as well as you know everybody mm-hmm. loves the uh, the borough and would, would love to live there but uh anyway uh yeah so malfoy is essentially teasing teasing uh neville when he finally stands up for himself which is is really nice and i think this kind of spurs that thing inside neville that he stands up to people now even stands up to his friends um and this mm kind of really the start of the fact that Neville gets some points in the very end which uh, which Dumbledore dishes out so uh, yeah this is pretty good yeah this is this is definitely the one well, maybe not the turning point but a key turning point in in Neville's life I think it wouldn't be too far to yeah. say you he's, know, he's, he, gonna, he's gonna always go through this sort of like stuff throughout the books like he, he's always mm. feeling down on himself um, and and I don't think it's you know a real turning point for him and his character until further on in the series Series, um, where he really comes out of his his shell, and then and then we have Dumbledore, and I just like that Dumbledore's presence at the Quidditch game uh, creates sort of a sense of security for Harry, um, and I think we can see here that you know whenever Dumbledore is around, there's a there's a level of peace that comes with that because mm. everybody understands how powerful Dumbledore is, and uh, you know for the for the good guys essentially, if you know you've got Dumbledore with you, there's there's almost this level of confidence that comes with that uh, a level of protection that you feel yeah and when we see uh, Dumbledore uh, coming I, I think it's it makes sense that that Harry would probably feel that um, that presence most acutely because he's the one who um, is probably most sensitive to the 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 feeling of of evil and the feeling of yeah. of of fear in that way, and not not because he's a scared kid, but because he's had uh, real encounters with evil, whereas most people probably haven't at this point in their life. They might have experienced some wrongdoing, but to actually have experienced true evil, as Harry has with Voldemort, um, he's he's very aware of that, and so I think experiences that sensation of relief in a in a greater degree than others would. And in addition to to Dumbledore's um, keen sense of protection, we also see a little hint, and we'll talk about this more in our foreshadowing section, but we also see a little bit of Snape, uh, Snape's ability, um, as Harry describes it, to read minds. Um, Harry um, is is describing the fact that he seems to be running into Snape wherever he goes, and he's wondering if Snape is trying to follow him, catch him on his own, and then he asks the question, could Snape possibly know they've found out about the Philosopher's Stone. Harry didn't see how he could, yet sometimes he had the horrible feeling that Snape could read minds. And of course, when Harry mentions this to Snape much, much later on, um, Snape's response is, the mind is not a book to be read. Uh, But you know, this is probably what is happening. I I, I wouldn't put it past Snape um, in in even in his role uh, instructed by Dumbledore to to be doing some level of legitimacy to understand what is going on with Harry in in the service of his protection. 
Yeah, yeah. The 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 whole uh, mind reading, you know, definitely Snape doesn't see it in that way because he, you know, he values sort of his knowledge, and uh, you know, he doesn't see it as like, yeah, you're just flipping through pages in a in a book uh, to be mm. to be read like that. And uh, but it but you know, on the outside, definitely looks like that. And from Harry's perspective, you know, a much younger, less educated uh, perspective, of of course, it's it's like he's reading his mind, um, which can be da- done essentially what this is is telling us from um you know from someone who has the the skill that you can do it without like a spell and and without a wand and i think we later Mm. on see that um with yeah with uh, voldemort and how he is such a a, i guess an expert at this um and looking into kind of someone's sort of mind heart uh and sort of understanding and and knowing them and uh, seeing if they're telling the truth and things like that so you can do that 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 skill can come in and you can do that actually without a spell uh, or, or a wand. At, at this point, the students have, have never been introduced to nonverbal spells even really. No, and, no. And so, yeah, this is a pretty major point for us just to consider as, you know, if you're reading through this for the first time, you're thinking, really, could that happen? Like you said, without someone knowing and obviously mm. we, we know that and more can be done without any kind of speaking or revealing oneself like that. And so, um, Blake, legitimacy is the reading of a mind. Now, what is the other um, magical ability as we look at the the world building that is taking place that goes hand in hand with legitimacy? Yeah, that would be occlumency. And so that's kind of the defense of the mind. Uh, so it's it's kind of the one that if you've got someone like uh, Voldemort, who is uh, just very skilled at legitimacy, uh, you would definitely want uh, to secure your mind um, with oculomency. And I think the, the interesting thing here is that, you know, we, we know by later later books that Harry, you know, tries to learn occlumency. Uh, it, it's never sort of said that he's he's learned legilimency by any means. It's he's only sort of failed at occlumency. Uh, but we also we also know that uh, Voldemort uh, is skilled at legilimency, but Maybe not so much occlumency. I don't know if we we find that out as much, but uh, the one character who is very proficient at both, uh, and that would be Snape. Yeah, Professor Snape is is very skilled at both, and I would probably say he's more so skilled uh, in occlumency, the defense, because uh, we know later chapters the sort of the big the big reveal uh, the the wonderful big secret of the series is that Snape is actually uh, a good character you know in the end and um, uh, it's all because you know he's played his role perfectly Uh, he has the defense of his mind so Voldemort kind of can't read his mind uh, like he would probably want to so he's able to kind of protect himself so that would be occlumency and uh, apparently it's quite difficult to learn yes Harry Harry certainly struggles with it although (laughs) I think part of that could be due to the tension between the teacher and the student. Yeah, yeah, um, along with this as well, we forced to think about and and we get some indication of this as well um, that there is this uh, code of ethics, I guess, um, around things like legitimacy and occlumency. Is that yeah. um, you know, well, while it would certainly be permissible to use occlumency and prevent people from knowing what you're thinking, to to invade someone's mind using legitimacy. Um, is definitely something that would raise questions of, is this right? In what circumstances? Is it violating someone's privacy? Uh, And so I think that 
wizards um, seeking to be honorable in what they're doing um, would would be very careful if they had this extreme ability to not use it for evil and to not use it even to impose on others. Um, you, you know, you think about people in, in wizarding culture not apparating into people's houses, uh, but, but rather you apparate onto the front steps. And I think that's almost a very... Um, similar idea that instead of invading someone's house, the the greater imposition would be that you'd invade someone's mind. And so I think that normally there would be, it would be very frowned upon within wizard society to, to use this ability, I guess, other than in extreme circumstances like a wizarding war or like um, maybe, maybe in the most extreme interrogations or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we see um, one, and one thing to note on this um, uh, for a legilimens, which is a, a perfect person who is proficient with legilimensy and legilimensy um, is as Queenie um, in the Fantastic mm. Beast series. Um, and, and this is where she's done it in, she she's very casual about it. It's it's portrayed very casual here, and this is all all based on the kind of the films because that's kind of what we what we have. We don't really have Fantastic Beasts books that go through the story, but we have Queenie, and she's very like, I think she's kind of open about it, and um, it's very interesting how that works because you think that that would just be. Uh, that would just be not allowed uh, that it would be some kind of yeah. crime uh, but it, it, apparently it's not you know because she's she uh, is using it sort of in uh, the the ministry of magic in the in the state of uh, the makusa and she's yeah i think i think queenie's a, quite a unique case though because she unlike seemingly others did did not have to develop this skill um, it, mm. it was something that she was born with the ability um, yeah. and and i think that even even Voldemort, if you look at um, at how he uses legitimacy, um, he is nowhere near the ability of Queenie simply being able to know exactly what people are thinking and, and feeling. Um, yeah. But you know, Queenie is is almost like reading a book. Like like she has that um, that projector screen playing in the person's brain and she's able just to watch the movie and see what's happening like she's yeah. reading someone's face. Exactly. I mean, if, if anybody's reading pages from a book, it's Queenie because yeah. um, of her natural ability. Because I think, you know, Dumbledore would have the skill and be able to, you know, to, to do legitimacy. But I, I mean, I think Queenie's one is definitely... Yeah, she definitely is able to delve deeper into someone's mind and to know kind of their thoughts and feelings, their motives. And so it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, a pretty scary kind of skill to 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 have or to know that, that mm. someone has, maybe especially if they're sort of close to you, it would just be quite of a, a difficult, difficult thing. But yeah, we definitely see this come through later on in the, the books. And so it's a nice little kind of, you know, not explicitly mentioned in this mm. first book, uh, but it is a nice little touch that whole, you know, mind reading uh, and talking about that because it's definitely a, a form of magic. Yeah, and and I and we don't actually get in, introduced to this topic um, until I believe Harry Potter and uh, the Order of the Phoenix. But yeah. as as this idea has been planted in our minds, as we see Voldemort rise to strength and um, increasing power towards um, the end of of Prisoner of Azkaban, and then certainly in Goblet of Fire, it sh it should be you know, something in the back of our, our minds thinking, hmm, if Snape 
can be thought to be reading people's minds. What mm. about that connection between Harry and Voldemort that, that seems to be increasing and growing where he understands something of what Voldemort's feeling is that, you know, it, it, should, it should be certainly something we're, we're thinking about even in the background. Um, but, but I think, you know, obviously that's, that's something that's hinted at in this chapter. What's, what's really important and what is explicitly uh, a, a part of our world building is the introduction of the philosopher's stone. Yeah, that's. I think that's that's a pretty easy world building one because it's uh, we actually finally get it named, so we finally know what was in that grubby little package uh, that that Hagrid finally know took what the book is about. You know, the title. There we go. I know because it, it kind of gives it to you, so you sort of assume. I assume that everybody who sees that grubby little package would kind of like know that. Hey, that's the philosopher's stone. So, so we're kind of in the know compared to uh, the actual. You know the people in the story so we've kind of got a bit more information uh than you know harry as as we know hey this is the philosopher's stone that they're talking about or at least we can we can assume uh, that that's the the case so we see that through here and they, they get excited that they actually kind of know what it is now um therefore they can kind of see the motive of it they know that you know the stone brings life um through uh, the elixir of life which it mentions it's it's how they how uh, they make the elixir of life, which prolongs your life. Uh, and then it also turns sort of the common metals into, into gold. Uh, and so they kind of have those two things and, and they think that, okay, well, what one does Snape want? And we learn later on in this book uh, that maybe it's not quite that Snape uh, wants it for himself, but wants it for someone else. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's something that will um, come to us, come to us a little bit later. As we also see the Philosopher's Stone, we, we see several uh, indications already as to um, you know how this Philosopher's Stone fits into the broader um, ancient understanding of alchemy, how it is similar, um, and and how this this wizarding world continues to expand and include so much of what has happened in our own world as well um, alchemy was something that was was studied as as a science as a um, as a philosophy throughout europe africa china um, other parts of asia as well uh, from really the the turn of the millennia around you know 60 or so um bc until the, the Middle Ages. So, you know, close to 1500 years, people were, were practicing this, were studying this, investigating, you know, can we produce a, um, a philosopher's stone? Can we produce this one um, thing that will be able to do this? I've got a couple um, other functions of alchemy, Blake, that, that aren't mentioned in the book. Um, oh. There's, there's uh, the, the main one, which is uh, called um, chrysopeia um, which is the changing of metals into gold um, the creation of the elixir of of immortality the sure. creation of a uh, panaceus which would be used to cure any disease pretty valuable oh, wow. and the development of an alkahest which would be a universal solvent um, which would be very helpful in any other related chemistry type issues. And uh, in addition to this, something I've just uh, found out as well is that um, the, the study of alchemy and kind of the philosophy behind alchemy was um, connected to this idea of, of, of gnosis, um, the Greek idea of gnosis, which would be like a higher knowledge. Um, the, 
the um the Greeks thought that if you could um, achieve this this alchemy and and be able to produce these previously unseen things, you would reach this higher elevated state of of knowing and and being, um, and and that's even something that um, would would be one of the Christian church's first heresies to fight would be Gnosticism coming from that same kind of yeah, special just, knowledge. Just thinking about that, thinking like the, the Gnosis that I'm assuming that was sort of to do with the Gnosticism. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, so I just find it fascinating, Blake, that, you know, by introducing something like the philosopher's stone and alchemy and saying, while it was unsuccessful in our world, it, you know, no one ever did this. Mm. Um, it's something that wizards have done and potentially could do in the future. Yeah. And, and in doing so, J.K. Rowling wraps her arms around real history and says, you know, maybe, just maybe, um, someone did do it. And, you know, in, in this world, we, we come to find that that person is Nicholas Flamel. J.K. Rowling herself um, has, has thought about this. It wasn't an accident, of course. She, um, she was very intentional in saying that she wanted her Philosopher's Stone, this is from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, um, to conform to most of the attributes that the ancients ascribed to it. Um, so, so what the ancient people... Uh, said that they were trying to do through creating a um, a, a, a stone like this. Uh, she she wanted her stone to be something similar. She she wanted um, the the fact that you know Nicholas Flamel, who's thought to have been an alchemist, uh, Isaac Newton, perhaps also an alchemist in that way, certainly dabbling, um, that that they would fit into the text of of Harry Potter and and be almost characters within the broader. Yeah canon which is quite quite cool yeah um, and and then the, i think the last thing that i think is really neat that we see um is is just a little nod to to her brilliance with names now um the the two characters who are most associated in our book with the retrieval of the stone and the protection of the stone um, i think would have to be hagrid and dumbledore and later in the book, the stone is described as being a bright white, red-ish kind of color. Um, and the name Albus means white and, and bright. Um, and the name Rubius means red. And so even, even there, mm, um, I, I think you know, she, she's based the appearance off of the combination of these two characters who will you know, be crucial to its protection. Yeah, that's that's quite funny. That two two characters that really uh, just kind of would desire for its being protected, and not necessarily desire it for them their own personal gain. Yeah, um, and the uh, I think the last little kind of world building that we see is uh, just a couple of spells here um, uh, that we that we get, and so the sort of types of spells uh, we get the leg locker curse, uh, who unfortunately. Uh, Neville uh, is is sort of sort of fallen fallen into that one, and then the locomotor mortis, uh, and uh, just a, a few little things. I always I always like the the way that she puts these in. And uh, Josh, I just would like to ask you a question before we move on to literary devices, and that would be if you were able to do one spell, uh, and that's not just these ones here. It's kind of like with the the, the whole uh, Harry Potter knowledge that you have. What spell? Would you be a you know? Would you want to be able to do? 
Oh man, Blake, hitting hard. Um, I put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what bell this would be because it's not really mentioned in either the books or the movies, as far as I know. But seeing Dumbledore and Professor Slughorn change back the Muggles' house <laughs> that they had destroyed within seconds, perfectly, uh, just by waving their wands, um, that that spell would be great to learn. Um, yep. I, I don't know if it's you know the classic scourgeify. Uh, spell. Yeah, well, um, so you know that's like the, like the practicality of that one. You know, if, if like let's say I could only use one spell my whole life, but I could use it multiple times, that would be very tempting. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, that would that's definitely in the cards. You you're allowed to kind of yeah. use it's the only magic you yeah. could you could use. Yeah, that would be man. It'd just be so helpful so often. <laughs> it would be. Um, it's like a combination of scourgeify, rapiro. Yeah, um, they're like just like doing so many different things. Yeah, yeah, tuning back uh, time. Yeah, I don't know. A little. It seems. It seems. Uh, yeah, different. But that yeah. would that would be very ha- helpful. That would be very helpful, especially you know if you burned your house down or if something bad happened in your home, you could just kind of be like, well, let's change that back. Especially, you know, it seems like one of the major limitations in the wizarding world when there is destruction is that that destruction might have been caused by by a curse or by magic and that doesn't mean it can be repaired but in our world you know if if something just burned down with regular plain old fire you know that spell would probably do a pretty good job you could you could fix it um i jotted down here for myself um that it it would be pretty cool to to have uh, the ability to be able to kind of uh sort of say you know accio uh anything and uh, and have it sort of just fly towards me. I think that would be that would be pretty cool. So sort of like a retrieval spell. So I put that one down for myself, thinking that would be good. That or Alohomora would kind of be cool. Yeah, I've always thought that Accio would be um, a potential for someone losing their head. Um, like you know, if you like Accio bowling ball, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, poor Blake gets smashed in the face of the bowling ball. You know, or I, it just yeah. seems like more pranks could be used. Like that, I'm standing so right true. behind Draco Malfoy, and I, I say Accio uh, Knight in Shining Armor, and the Knight in Shining Armor comes <laughs> flying toward me and hits Draco. <laughs> impales impales yeah. uh, Malfoy well that would definitely solve a lot of issues later on in the book surely if Malfoy is dead but anyway no um, <laughs> so that, that would probably not be good but as we uh, as we jump off that and move into to literary devices um uh, you know definitely we uh, we chatted in the past about uh, this uh, the, the MacGuffin and that's kind of this grubby little package we you know what what could it be uh, that's finally revealed and and you know we know that now is the philosopher's stone uh, but uh, Josh, you put down here epiphany. What 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 is that? Yeah. So so just as it sounds, the the epiphany is is the aha moment. Uh, mm. So so for a, quite a while now, we've we've been with the characters, especially if you're in your first time reading through the books, wondering first of all what what the grubby package is. Um, yeah. You know that's been going on very early on uh second you've been wondering who nicholas flamel is and so this this moment of discovery is is key we've talked about that in the key theme but but also related to that is is the way that this aha moment happens it doesn't happen like you would expect it doesn't happen after hours and hours of searching the library and hermione comes across it naturally and systematically it it comes as a result of of harry trying to cheer up neville and 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 them giving a chocolate frog card and then mm. you know, neville says oh harry don't you collect it and yeah you know he, he gets it and then they find out that on the back is is dumbledore 
And because it's Dumbledore, that is where they are reintroduced to to Nicholas Flamel. And so it is it's it's a eureka moment. It's a it's a, um, a gold rush moment where you discover a nugget, you know, the size of your fist. It's it's a, a key moment, but it's also a moment that happens really unexpectedly and not how um, the, the reader has been anticipating them finding out who Flamel was. Yeah. No, definitely. And uh, just just one thing before before we talk a little bit about foreshadowing, just the the fact that you, as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting because because I, I thought about it just a little bit and I thought it could be quite interesting. And that's Neville giving, you know, knowing that Harry collects the chocolate mm. frog cards. And so, you know, right from that, that train trip, right, you know, the uh, Hogwarts Express into, uh, you know, this wonderful wizarding world, you know, Harry's on there with Ron and, um, you know, Ron goes, oh, you can start collecting, you know, because because he has all these cards and these duplicates. And so you can start collecting. So I think somewhere, and we don't hear any you know any more about this in 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 the books i don't think but it's uh that somewhere maybe in his suitcase or somewhere you know at a private drive is a stack of uh, these cards um and uh you know stack of these chocolate frog cards and i'm curious to know if if ever uh you know one day if harry actually finished his set of chocolate frog cards uh, yeah, I wonder. So, I wonder how much yeah. those would be worth. How many galleons you could get for a full set of yeah. cards? Um, sure, there'd be some real ones. Yeah, like like um, Dumbledore seems to be quite a common one if he's gotten it multiple times. Mm. Uh, and and Ron mentions he has several of them as well. Uh, but but I don't know if you know this, Blake. But but we are in the middle of a absolute resurgence and bull market um, for uh, sports trading cards, which you know definitely seems to be what J.K. Rowling based chocolate fraud cards off of, like collectible cards. And, and right now, um, baseball cards, basketball cards, football cards are, are selling for thousands upon thousands of dollars. And people are using them almost like stock trading at the moment. It's just a bizarre thing. So I wonder if, you know, wow. that's exactly what's going on in the wizarding world right now is people yeah. are you know, <laughs> trading their chocolate card uh, frogs for thousands upon thousands of dollars. And um, Harry's probably got his own chocolate frog card by now. Yeah, yeah, that that would be pretty cool to to be a, on on the chocolate frog. I mean, we we know that you can take all these things away from Dumbledore, you know, all his titles, uh, uh, you know, from the Wizengamot and and things like that. His uh, you know Order of Merlin, but just don't take him off the chocolate frog card. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I imagine that it'd be uh, it'd be you know really incredible. You'd probably want to find the the first edition Dumbledore chocolate frog card, uh, you know, yeah. perfect condition. Um, and and that would probably sell for something similar to uh, the LeBron James rookie card, Blake, which recently sold for oh, guess man. how much? Guess how much? So okay, Le- LeBron James. And now for those yeah. who are listening out there, I am uh, I'm not super big on all sports, but I'm I'm. A, LeBron James is basketball, right, Josh? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Uh, now, a basketball card. I don't. dollars. Um, $20, $20, $20, is that like nuts? One point eight million dollars. <laughs> what? <laughs> One point eight million dollars. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. That is crazy. And, it's, and, and I, I think it's. I think what's what's so unique is that he. 
is still playing. He's arguably still the best player in the league. And that, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Technically, because he's so wealthy, he could probably buy his own very expensive <laughs> card, sign it, and probably make like, you know, a, you know, a million more dollars. But uh, I, I'm not a financial expert, Josh. That is not my area of expertise. But you mentioned it before that, you know, people are, are kind of like, you know, using these as like stock options. That's yeah. probably not the best idea because it's really yeah, so, only so that would as be, much value as we put well, into it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like it would be for number one, it'd be extremely volatile. Like st- like the the cards go up and down in value very quickly. Um, but yes, then second yeah. is it's it's like the the um, prime example of a single stock, right? It's like there's yes. no um, portfolio protection. You are getting one card and you know riding and dying with that one card. So a very risky yeah. stock, but you yeah, know very yeah, one point eight million dollars. Wow, that is nuts. It's just so I don't know. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm guessing Dumbledore's you know mint condition <laughs> first edition chocolate frog card could probably be worth you know at the time of his death. I'm gonna say like six hundred thousand galleons or something. Something like that. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. I'm trying to think. First edition card. Does that mean, um, you know, because there's an element of him, you know, he can't always hang around. They say, uh, and uh, and so he, you know, there are moments where the people on the chocolate frog cards are are not there. Uh, but I wonder if the first edition one captures the the likeness of a younger Dumbledore. You know, when when uh, he actually, uh, you know, got on the chocolate frog card, that would just be really interesting. Yeah, and. And and do they have to go back and get photos taken every 10 years? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, a little like these sort of moving picture things. But anyway, I think we've we've probably talked a lot about uh, chocolate frog cards and I'm kind of feeling like a little chocolate right now. Uh, mm. But uh, no, moving moving on to, to talking about foreshadowing, we we talked, uh, you know, a decent amount on Legilimency, uh, but we just see how Snape uses that repeatedly throughout the series as as will Voldemort you know as he becomes as he regains his his body uh, and we actually see him do more throughout the books yeah and and while a if i think generally understood to be a foolish idea overall um harry is able to um to to use this connection in quite a significant way and and he thinks you know i why learn occlumency this this connection to voldemort is more important than blocking him out and and which is quite a a bold way of thinking and ultimately proves to be destructive in his relationship with sirius but he does use it successfully a few times as well so harry kind of you know spurns this idea that he should learn it almost yeah, yeah, and I and I did I did think when I was I was looking at this how the fact that and this is you know a, a huge huge spoiler alert for those who haven't read the the last book, uh, but uh, we you know we in the, at this podcast in the restricted section assume that you have read the series. Uh, that's kind of Josh and I's uh, uh, you know thing when we talk about the book. We just assume you've read everything, and that would be that Harry is a, a Horcrux, and I. Th- think there is this sort of deeper connection with Voldemort and so I think that it definitely makes it harder for Harry to defend himself against Voldemort uh, because yeah. Yeah. yeah so so and it's only when really that that you know Harry feels that love that that Voldemort kind of blocks that connection himself knowing how dangerous it, it is yeah it, it's 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 no wonder because instead of you know 
blocking something external. Harry is in a in quite a real way having to block something internal as well. Yeah, yeah because there is this connection, this imprint of Voldemort left within Harry from their first interaction. I think, like um, especially on the back of um, the previous chapter, the Mirror of Eris said, we see a further connection and foreshadowing um, to Dumbledore's character, uh, and this is you know this is definitely reading between the lines. This is not stated anywhere, but. What we're learning about Dumbledore is that he is a man who values living in the present. And and the fact that he is in some way Nicholas Flamel's partner in alchemy, um, but has not himself chosen to to extend his life and drink of the elixir of 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 life, as we will see later on in the book. He's you know, he, yeah. he hasn't done that. Um it's it's something that I, I think we, we we know for certain that he is someone who is not tempted by wanting to live forever. He has um, experienced so much loss in his life that he would rather pass on from this present life. And and there does seem to be something of an afterlife. We'll probably talk about that later in the Wizarding mm. World. Um, but but Dumbledore has a very uh, I think a healthy perspective on 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 death is that he's he's not afraid of it um, and and he he's not trying to um, come back as a ghost like some people do. He's not trying to extend his life on this earth for the sake of it in a way. Yeah, and Dumbledore's self control is something that I, I, you know, is is amazing and that I admire. And that's you know he knows himself so well. Um, he knows his his sort of desires that he's had, especially younger, uh, when he's desired power. Uh, and he knows uh, that you know this this sort of object could be quite a, a temptation for him anyway. Um, if he really let go now, now that is, I think he he's maybe not as much tempted by this as say you know back in the day from like the pursuit of the elder wand and the the power that comes through those types of things, but. This here is um, is something where, like like you said, he suffered a lot of loss. Where it's like to go on living, uh, you know. Whereas death is is only about the next kind of great adventure, and, and so I think he he values that, and so would uh, would rather just maybe maybe not live to six hundred and sixty five years mm. old. Yeah, yeah, and I think too with a slight bit of foreshadowing connected to that is is we also see in in this. Um, chapter and in this book um, a, a little bit of uh, uh, something that should alert us as to Dumbledore's um, control over his plans. Um, mm. and, and I think that if you consider his relationship with Nicholas Flamel, he was likely you know, the one who, who went to Flamel and, and said, Voldemort is likely to come to you if he returns to get the stone. And, yeah. and you need to give it to me for protection. And and he's orchestrating all these things behind the scenes. And um, he's making sure that it's in the safest place. He's the one who tells um, Hagrid to go and take it out of Gringotts, bring it to Hogwarts. And you know, all of this going on in the background of things really does point us to what will happen later on in the books when it's not just the Philosopher's Stone, but all of a sudden it's Horcruxes and Hallows that are in, in view. Yeah. Um, we also see a, a, a foreshadowing here, which will be more of a foreshadowing for this book in particular, but also for um, the great reveal of, of Snape's true character 
is that when 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 Harry talks about Snape seeming to follow him and running into Snape everywhere, I think what that's showing us is Snape is is protecting him in a much closer yeah. way. We think it's just Snape being kind of Snape, you know, because he's he's uh, portrayed as just this this villainous character who's out to get Harry, and so we just see oh, you know, Harry keeps running into him. But it's um yeah later later learned that it's it's by kind of uh, I guess uh, the the desire to protect. Harry, uh, that he is, uh, he's doing this. Definitely. Um, and then finally, what we see is, um, a real sense of foreshadowing with Neville's bravery, Blake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this definitely, this definitely is one of those things that you don't assume Neville's going to take on a much bigger role, um, than he, he currently has. And, uh, you're not going to assume that he becomes, uh, just a, a very, I guess, developed character throughout the series. Uh, but man, the, the comparison from his first year to his last year is pretty impressive. And uh, we, we see this all throughout, but he, um, he definitely learns and grows in himself. And uh, in that last book is, is very brave. Uh, and I think uh, as we go through the series, we'll definitely see his progression uh, towards uh, becoming, you know, quite a, a wonderful character uh, that you definitely would want on your side uh, in, in the fight, you know, cause plenty of people, I, I think about this, plenty of people run away and, and don't want to fight in that kind of last battle, that, that war, the wizard war kind of thing, but Neville, Neville stands and he fights. And that's um, pretty impressive for just this kind of little scrawny kid who's uh, is definitely kind of timid uh, and uh, probably kind of, sort of quakes under the or shakes under the stare of of Malfoy and his cronies. Yeah. In in this chapter Malfoy tells um Neville that he's not brave enough to be in Gryffindor. Um, yeah. and and that's really yeah. the 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 sense of dramatic irony is that in in the final in the final book um Neville is shown to be a, a true Gryffindor in the yeah. purest sense because he's able to pull Gryffindor's sword out of the sorting hat. Um, yeah. Something that only a true Gryffindor could do and showing that he was put in the right house and he has these um, elements of bravery within him, even if they were a little bit obscured in the first book. Yeah, definitely. So we, we see uh, quite a, quite a few things in, in, in this chapter. And, uh, but I mean, the main, the main one is that philosopher's stone. We know what it is. We learn more about it, what it can do, uh, who made it. Uh, and then we also know, uh, well, it's kind of alludes to it that Snape uh, is uh, becoming even more of the villain as uh, he is seen towards the end of the chapter, kind of interrogating Quirrell and, uh, you know, the, the trio, our, our wonderful trio kind of get on Quirrell's side and we will see that in the next chapter. We'd love to hear your feedback. So head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and leave a review. Your reviews help keep the magic alive. To continue the adventure, join us next time as we discuss the 14th chapter of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback.